welcome and thank you for tuning in or downloading this special 100th episode of the Political Economy Podcast. We're coming to you live from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington as part of the first, and if we live in a just universe, annual AEI Ricochet Podcasting Summit. I'm joined by two of my esteemed colleagues, two crackerjack economists at the exact peak of their intellectual prowess. Michael Strain and Stan Voiger, who uh, some of you may, uh, if you're regular listeners, may remember from previous episodes. Dr. Strain is the Director of Economic Policy Studies here at AEI, and Dr. Voiger is a resident scholar and editor of AEI's Economic Perspectives paper series. I'm also joined by a live audience, a rambunctious, just energized live audience in front of us here in AEI's massive auditorium. And they will have a chance to pose some questions, not monologues, not speeches, uh, not summaries of your screenplays uh, later uh, in this uh, broadcast. And for uh, online listeners, if you like the show, let us know. Uh, this could be the start of a new podcast series on its own, so feel free to tweet us your thoughts. Our handles are at Stan Voiger, at Michael Strain, and at Jim Pethokoukas. We'll try to respond to any feedback we get. Uh, you'll probably have much better odds of getting noticed by either Stan or Mike, uh, both of whom have far fewer followers than me on Twitter. But, uh, you know, well, far Far fewer, but not we're not counting. Um, uh, so tweet us, uh, tweet us your thoughts. Um, all right, enough in the way of <laughs> introductions. I agree. I agree. <laughs> by by day, if we if you divide by the number of days we've lived, the uh, numbers are pretty equal. I think. <laughs> I have no response to that. All right. Um, uh, breaking news: the year is 2018. So we're about a decade on from the Great Recession and the global financial crisis. It was the too- reason that's breaking news is because you have the ability <laughs> to go back and forth across the time block. I like to, th- I'd like to you think that I, trans- the I transcend the barriers of time and space. Uh, so in 2008, the crisis really started kicking in. Um, and there'll be lots of re- you'll see lots of retrospectives in the media uh, about what's going on in 2008. You know, hedge funds collapsing, banks collapsing, uh, bailouts. Now, you guys were probably either in grad school or barely out of grad school when we had the recession and crisis. And one question I'd like to ask uh, guests is, did the downturn or crisis change your thinking or challenge your thinking about economics anyway, whether about regulation, debt, how policymakers uh, should respond to economic ch- uh, shocks? Did it change your thinking? Uh, Dr. Strain, you've been very uh, talkative so far, so I'm going to give the question uh, to you first. No. Dr. Voiger. No, Dr. Strait, I, I assume that it, that is merely the tip of the iceberg of, of thinking uh, on this. So no. Not, is, that, is that your answer? No, it has not changed your thinking. All, some people may have changed their thinking or at least challenged their thinking. Um, I, you know, I don't think that the uh, – uh, I will help you to ask a better question than the question that you have asked. Um, the Great Recession didn't uh, change my thinking in any – significant way. We have seen financial crises before. We know that those tend to be particularly severe. Um, it's not surprising that uh, uh, that housing was involved. It's not surprising that, that you know, assets that can be mispriced were involved. Uh, the aftermath of the Great Recession... Um, why, why is it not surprising that housing was involved? 
Why is it not surprising that housing was involved? Yeah. Is it because previous financial crises also involved housing? Well, it's because um, with the benefit of 10 years of hindsight, I'm able to look back in time and see that houses were overvalued. So you're using using the word surprising as in when I look back. (laughs) It should not have come as a surprise because it actually happened. That is precisely how I am using the word surprising. That's not the canonical (laughs) use of the word surprising, but please go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> That's not the canonical use of the word surprising. Um, uh, but I think, I think we learn things in the aftermath. Um, I think many people, including me, were uh, surprised by um, the duration of the recovery. Uh, you often hear people talk about kind of V-shaped versus L-shaped uh, or U-shaped. Uh, you know, I think this was, this was a little closer to... To somewhere between the L and the U than it was to the V. Um, I think that the uh, uh, responsiveness of labor markets in terms of their adjustment to uh, the uh, recession has been surprising. Um, you know, so I think we've learned. I think we've learned a lot of a lot of things about uh, uh, how the economy works today as a consequence of the downturn. But the specific precipitating event when we have recessions, Dr. Boyer. Um, I think for, for me, the main lesson I think was that we we really need to be aware of tail risks, and that that's very difficult. I think for for society to focus on. So in this case, it was um, a bunch of assets that were way mispriced, and and then uh, undermined much of the financial system. But there's other risks uh, that have arisen since. For example, I think it was reasonable for people to, to be very focused on debt dynamics and to continue to be very worried about uh, that. Um, similarly, I think it's reasonable to be very worried about, sort of, uh, about a trade conflict and sort of the tail risk there or about um, you know, the risk of democratic decline in major Western countries. I, I, I think that's an important uh, takeaway from the financial crisis. Was that, you know, like, I, some people were concerned about the housing market, but I don't. I, you know, even those people, I don't think were uh, were that worried about the kind of generational financial crisis, that we, the sort of economic crisis that we saw. And do you think there is anything reasonably that policymakers experiencing this in real time could have uh, could have done to? either lessen the impact or avoided the recession, you know, dramatically more, uh, you know, Fed monetary easing or stimulus, or do you think policymakers probably did about as well as they could given that it's what, that even though we may have seen deep recessions before, it was sort of a different sort of recession than we've seen in the United States before. Well, we're, we're, we're running unlimited deficits now. You know, if we're going to do that now, then we might as well have done that eight years ago. Um, you know, so if yeah, if if we then now again, you're confusing the timeline. We mean eight years ago, we didn't know that we would be running unlimited deficits today. I'm not, but I wasn't expressing surprise. <laughs> uh, I'm using all of the words I'm using in their traditional sense. Um, you know, I don't think that that would have been wise. But you know, so that if 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 today's policymakers, which are you know basically the same people that were in charge. Eight years ago, if they if they think there's so much fiscal space now, they should have deployed that in 2010, 2011, not now. Um, 
beyond that, I, you know, I think the Federal Reserve's response is pretty good, certainly compared to the ECB's, and ultimately copied by the ECB's, I think, as it, as it saw what, what happened in the U.S. and how the recovery worked out a little better um, than here. I mean, otherwise, I, you know, certainly the crisis management is hard to second-guess. Uh, you know, there's always minor things, right? Like, obviously, the, when the House voted down TARP and then uh, accepted it a week later or two days later, it, it might as well have accepted it. You know, there's, there's, there's small stuff that, that, were, that was obviously a mistake, but, but beyond that, I don't think there's that much. Once the crisis hit, that could have been done. Mike, do you think they could have done differently, or could they have done anything differently to help the, the recovery, be, recovery be a bit more robust? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I, I give the Fed high marks as well. Um, I do think that on the fiscal policy side that more could have been done. The initial stimulus, um, I think, uh, was uh, poorly designed um, and you know, could have been better designed uh, with the goal of, of you know really helping people get back to work and and, and, and helping with the recovery, they need to be bigger. Um, that well, seems to be the uh, left of center critique is it just wasn't big enough. Well, I mean, I think again with the with the benefit of ten years hindsight, you know, we know that um, that the unemployment rate came down slower than we thought it would have, and you know that might or might not argue for uh, a larger dollar value. I think certainly um, the fact that it took so long. To get a lot of that money out the door and into the economy, I mean, you know, you can argue about whether or not uh, fiscal stimulus works, um, but I don't think there's much of an argument that if the dollars don't get spent, then there isn't then there isn't a fiscal stimulus. And a lot of that was was a design issue. Um, so you know, there may just be a natural limit to how much money the federal government can spend uh, quickly in you know in a you know nine month period or a year long period or, or, or whatever. Um, but I think subsequent to that, the administration, and I don't, I don't particularly fault them for this, but the Obama administration uh, was repeatedly surprised by how long it took the economy to get back to normal. Again, I don't, I don't particularly fault them for that. You know, professional forecasters across the board were surprised by this, and you know, lots of people were surprised by this. So I don't think that's unique to them. But I think as a consequence of that, the administration turned. Uh, more quickly than it should have to the president's domestic agenda, trying to pass the Affordable Care Act, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think with the benefit of hindsight, it would have been better if the administration were more focused on uh, policies to help um, uh, with the recovery, policies to help get people back to work and policies to help uh, uh, you know, stabilize the economy. And stabilize the housing market, for example. Right, there's for example, yeah, you yeah. could have easily thrown a lot of money. Yeah, exactly, that. exactly. So, um, I do think that I do think that uh, uh, that the Obama administration could have done a better job. Um, but you know, then we get you know we get back into uh, issues of the space time continuum, and you know, how could they have known what the future would have held unless they had the ability to travel through time like you do? It's a blessing and a burden. And all of this is, all of this, of course, conditional on you know everything that we know right now, including the fact that we're we're going to be running two trillion dollar deficits five years from now. Um, right? You, it, I don't think that's a good idea. But if we're going to, if we're going to, if, if that's going to be the, fis, the fiscal policy path we're going to, we, we've decided to adopt, then we should have shifted a lot of the deficits back toward 2010, 11, 12. Um, were, were there uh, different policies other than? more deficit spending or stimulus that we could have done uh, since the Great Recession to have, you know, accelerated the recovery, faster GDP growth? 
Stan? Well, there's, uh, Mike, there's a lot of labor market-type policies that Mike likes that I guess you, you, you could have done. I mean, a lot of those are pretty hard. A lot of them re- rely on reducing. Big tax cuts, something like that. Well, so that's what you could have done. Right? So the tax cut we, we did now, you could have done in 2011. Um, I don't know how feasible that was at the time, because at that time the, the narrative was, oh, we're going to be Greece. We have to uh, cut the deficit. That's apparently not a concern anymore. But that's something you could have done, right? A big tax cut, even though much of the stimulus, of course, was 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 tax cutty in in nature. Um, I don't know. Well, the on the on the active labor market policy side, there are things you could do, but I don't know that that those get to to the macro scale. You can you can pay. What does you that can, mean in active labor? Well, you can pay, You can exploit the uh, the variety you have in unemployment rates. By getting people to move to places that have that have labor markets that are healing a little faster, uh, I think Mike likes that. Where you pay him either a subsidy or credit, but you know, I mean, it's part of that is, I mean, that, the that requires a lot of uh, sort of detailed, focused policy making. It's the same for I think for retraining, where you know because so much of the construction sector went away, you 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 wanted to take those people and. Retrain them to work in other sections that were growing, like you know, something like healthcare. Um, you know, those from those programs are very difficult to execute. I think successfully when you start from scratch, but that could have been something uh, you could have tried. Um, if you could have done a large military build-up, right on the spending side, that's that's something I think we're we're doing now. But that is, I think, one area where the federal government is extremely good at spending uh, enormous amounts of money very quickly. Uh, so that you know, so there are there are some areas, but a lot of other policies, I I just don't think scale up to the kind of macro level that we need. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, hear from our sponsor, and we'll be back. Hey, a quick reminder: we're being sponsored today by Donors Trust. Did you know you actually have the ability to make a difference in stopping the slide away from the bedrock American ideals of liberty? Donors Trust. The Community Foundation for Liberty wants to help you find those organizations doing the important work on the issues that matter the most to you. A donor advice fund at Donors Trust gives you a way to simplify your giving, receive excellent tax benefits, and protect your privacy, all with a partner that understands and shares your commitment to a free society and limited government. So, are you ready to be more strategic in your giving? Go to DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet to receive your free Expert's Guide to Effective Giving and see how you can use your charitable dollars to put free market ideas into action. You'll also receive a special bonus, the Investing in Liberty Guide that offers a step-by-step process to strategically support America's bedrock principles through your giving. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet. We're back with Mike Strain and Stan Voiger. Um, as, you, as we were talking about the financial crisis and the recovery, both of you mentioned uh, deficits. And my initial question was about sort of has your thinking changed? And one area where thinking, uh, at least among some economists, has changed is about the importance of debt and deficits. There seems to be certainly politically a lot less emphasis on it. But even I think in the economics profession, maybe a rethinking uh, about the carrying capacities of economy, how much that what they say fiscal space economies have, particularly the United States, should we really be concerned uh, about deficits? I think our debt-GDP ratio is somewhere in the you know, 75% of GDP. 
is is that a problem? Would it be would it be a problem if we were 125 percent or 150 percent? Why do you think so? If if you do, yes. Mike, can you maybe longer answers are both more informative and more entertaining. Uh, I don't know about more entertaining, but uh, more informative. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, Look, we should be concerned about debt and deficits. I don't think we should be in a in a panic about the current state of the debt. Um, we should not be concerned that we're going to have some sort of a you know Greek style debt crisis. Um, but we should be concerned about the uh, the the kind of current policy, current law path that we're on uh, with respect to the federal budget. Um, where we are losing, uh, where we're adding a trillion dollars to the national debt every year, give or take. Um, and we should be concerned about, uh, you know, not only those annual deficits, but about the uh, accumulated debt that we're, that we're racking up as a consequence. Um, there are many reasons why we should be concerned about this. Right what is now, the main one? <laughs> um, well, I don't know what the I don't know what the main one would be. It's hard to rank order them. Um, but right now we are in a uh, low interest rate environment, and the government can uh, can pay interest on that debt relatively cheaply. If we return to uh, a more normal interest rate environment, which which is I think the reasonable forecast, uh, you know, you know, at least over the next five years, let's say, um, we're going to be spending. A significant amount of taxpayer money just paying interest on that debt. We're going to be paying more interest on the debt than we pay for national security. We're going to be paying more interest on the debt than but we pay But that's not really that, that's not really a concern, right? Because then you just add even more to the debt. That, that's well, as long as know. interest rates don't respond, that's that's sustainable. As long as well, it it may. I mean, I, I, it, it's sustainable. Maybe not politically, but certainly. I, I don't know. What, I don't know what you mean by sustainable. I'm using uh, words in the um, uh, conventional common usage that uh, that they that they are often used in. Um, so, can you explain it, what 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 use what usage of problem you're deploying here? I'm making more of a normative point that it's probably not the best use of taxpayer money to be paying. But there's no but there's no restriction on taxpayer money if there's no feedback from increasing debt levels to to interest rates. Right? Which which brings us to another issue that the debt causes, which is likely that it will increase interest rates. Um, but I don't see how your first there's thing some is argument. No, no. But explain why your first <laughs> point is a concern separate from the second one. Why my first point is a concern separate from the second point? Yeah. Because, well, there are, there are, there are obvious reasons. Would you like to take a shot explaining why my first concern is, is... No, I don't think it's a concern unless you're a second point. You don't think that... You don't think that... that, that Servicing the debt at the same level that we finance the military is concerning. Oh, you think it's concerning only if that debt increases interest rates? Isn't it? How else? Does it, what's the? Because you think you have to raise taxes. Well, I think one. I think I think, I think one reason is that we will, you know, cut spending on uh, all sorts of other things because we're freaking out about it. Okay, but so it's more of a political constraint because we'll freak out and then we cut taxes. I mean, I guess in a in a in a in a in a, in a yeah. boring macroeconomic modeling sense, if you're talking about you know growth rates and, and comparing them, that it may or you know may or may not be a particular concern. But I think it's certainly something that he's usually oh, boring in the sense that organizing your thoughts. But, a lot of, but if, if someone would have told you back in 2008 that the debt GDP ratio was going to double over the next 10 years, 
would you, you know, would you have been concerned back then? And well, those I would have unfounded. Yeah, I would have been. It seems like Dr. Borger might not have been. No, I just want to understand why those, why you would be concerned about. This. So what? So just because that happened, basically, right? So what has been crowded out? Uh, well, so I don't know that anything – so when Stan says credit out, he means uh, whether the accumulated debt is increasing interest rates, which makes it harder for the private sector. No, to, no, no. I mean through the political channel that you that, – that is your first concern about the okay. debt. So when, when Stan says crediting out, he means that, uh, that there are uh, political challenges that stop Congress from spending money on other priorities. I don't know – I don't know that I would say – well – I certainly think that um, I guess I, I guess I, I guess I certainly think that uh, that political concern about the debt over the last ten years has been an obstacle to um, domestic non-discretionary spending. Uh, you know, things like the FBI and education and funding basic research and and, and those sorts of things. Um, I think some people would probably also argue that it's been uh, that it's that it's, that, it's, that it's been an obstacle to funding the military at adequate levels. Um, do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to make um, sure that you distinguished between your first and your second point here. And you. you got very hostile immediately. Because <laughs> I think you were suddenly a little worried that your first point was not as good as your second one. I think, I think again, I would want to rank order the points. <laughs> importance was my initial, was my initial but Jim and I want you to rank uh, order the points. You know, People like listicles. I, I, but, we, but we can list them in no particular order. Uh, I certainly think that, I certainly think that over the coming 10 years, if we continue on this current trajectory, uh, whether or not interest rates rise and debt service um, becomes more expensive, uh, that we'll see continued pressure as a consequence of the debt on important uh, uh, domestic priorities that we should be spending uh, money on, that we should be spending more money on. Um, in addition, my, my view is that, uh, that we will see an interest rate response um, so there's an argument that you know that uh, that capital markets are global and very very big, and that if the United States adds another you know 500 billion dollars a year uh, uh, in debt, that that really won't raise the interest rates that businesses and households have to face when they want to do things like buy buy homes or buy cars or take out business loans. Um, that argument's not crazy. I just don't. I just. I just. I just don't. Uh, but I, I don't think that that's right. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I think that when you when you look at it, you know, you you will see an interest rate response, and then that will suppress private sector activity in a way that's that's undesirable. Um, what, what do you make of the What do you make of the opposite? So it's sort of the inverse argument that there is a lack of uh, risk free assets um, and relatively high demand for it in the international financial markets, and that because there is not there aren't enough risk-free assets like German sovereign debt or U.S. sovereign debt, people have been, money has been flooding into things like, uh, you know, the, the mortgage derivatives before the crisis or emerging market debt now, like the 100-year bond that Argentina issued uh, just a month ago before they had to go back to the IMF this week. Uh, what, what do you make of that argument? So, that, that so, we need to, so we should be borrowing more to create more of those assets, meaning treasury bonds. Yeah. So people invest, so they're not investing in 
all these other things. Which and yeah, because they because they mute the way in which people perceive the risks of of other assets. Yeah, I think that's not crazy. I think a lot of that depends on the broader risk environment. Um, you know, you know what I mean. I think a lot of the a lot of the 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 wisdom behind that view I think depends on the broader risk environment, and to the extent that uh, you know you're you're putting the country on a um, you know ten year fiscal path, it probably makes the most sense to to chart that course thinking about a, a more you know a more normal policy environment. Oh. So, so you're saying the, the limitation to that view is that the risk-free assets have to, have to remain risk-free? And again, again, <laughs> well, and, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 right, yeah. And, 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 and that there will be this enormous demand for these risk-free assets uh, yeah. you know, relative, you know, relative to where, where you know, my, my initial question. But, I mean, it, but it highlights – it highlights – well, Jim we'll, uh, Jim, we'll get to you in a second. Um, without being rude about it, I reorganized your question to make it better and more interesting. We're, we're here to help you too. Uh, it, I think it, 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 it highlights the, the uncertainty around uh, you know, trying to make definitive statements about what – uh, international financial markets are, are going to do, um, which brings me to the third issue with a large national debt, uh, which is you know we we should have some concern about the fact that um, uh, a lot of foreign countries that may or may not be friendly with us hold large amounts of our debt. We should have some concern about the fact that. There, uh, uh, you know, that that as the debt rises and rises, the United States is more exposed to international bond markets. You know, again, I don't think we should be concerned about these things to the point of hysteria. Um, but there, but there are things to be worried about, and and and, and there are reason to avoid racking up all this debt. I mean, it would be one thing if we, you know, it's important to look at the source of the debt. Why are we racking up the debt, right? Uh, you know, let's say that. Um, you know that the Nazis invade Poland. That seems like a reasonable reason to rack up a lot of debt, uh, uh, and, a, and a reasonable reason to um, uh, expose the United States to these kinds of risks. Uh, you know, but if we're just racking up debt because we refuse to uh, make hard choices about our entitlement programs, if we're racking up debt because we want to lower tax rates but don't want to uh, broaden the tax base to the point where uh, we come close to revenue neutrality. Um, you know, then we're really making bad choices, and the accumulated debt uh, is not uh, a reasonable uh, byproduct of uh, sound policy choices. It's it's actually just irresponsible. And I'm now done with your question. Uh, I, have, I have one brief follow up if I can. Uh, do you think that view, um, which is probably the consensus left right view, most economists. Uh, is that view under fire? Is that still is, is it has that consensus weakened at all? It, it's to me it seems like it has, but maybe I just follow a lot of sort of you know outlying economists on Twitter. But it seems like it has. Well, I, so look, I mean, I think if you go back, um, and I'd be curious what Stan thinks about this, but I think if you go back to the early years of the Obama administration, there were a lot of economists who were who were at least there were some economists who were very public, very very concerned about. The debt, you know, approaching ninety percent of annual GDP, and the sky's going to fall. Uh, you know, if we, uh, you know, if we, you know, print all this money, and we're going to have the hyperinflation and all this sort of stuff. Um, you know, certainly that didn't happen, and I think that uh, that 
you know, whatever. Credence. <laughs> right. And that, you know, so I think that that did make people think, oh, well, maybe the economy's carrying capacity for debt is larger than we thought. There was a lot of talk about 90% being some sort of a tipping point, and, and we, you know, we'll pass that. And, you know, you know, so I think people, you know, may think that the economy's capacity to carry debt is different than we thought, you know, but there's, but there's a large political element to this too, because now you're seeing a lot of concern about the debt from the political left. Um, you know, I'm sympathetic to the view that it is more reasonable to be concerned about uh, large budget deficits during a time of economic expansion than it is during a time of severe economic contraction. Um, but, you know, I think it's important not to dismiss the, the political side of it, too. So I don't know. I think there may be, there may be some economists who have changed their views on, on how much debt the United States economy can handle. But I don't think that the – the consensus view that so I, th- I think economists who don't think it's a problem uh, th- that, that may have been their so view all along, but they're two, more they become more prominent. Two. Those economists have become more prominent, and their uh, views seem more acceptable, particularly on the left. But who you? Uh, I don't know. I think there are two strands of thought that deviate a little from this from this consensus that are that are serious. Right. So one is that there is for some reason underlying insufficient aggregate demand and, you know, low growth perspectives and we need to, you know, the, the government needs to step in with, with aggressive fiscal policy to compensate for that. The secular stagnation in its various incarnations. I've never really understood how that works. And the other one is the there is a lack of safe assets, sort of financial markets, macro uh, view of things. I think those two are, are relatively new in their current form. And so those, I think, are legitimate deviations from that consensus. Uh, I don't know that they've really caught on. Um, especially the second one relies on pretty intricate uh, math. And I think the first one was mostly – it mostly came into being because the economists who supported that secular stagnation view wanted to continue spending significant amounts of money on, on infrastructure programs or whatever else they wanted to, to do without raising taxes. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know how serious that one is as a – well, if, you, if you've given policymakers even maybe thin economic reasoning to do what they would prefer to do, which is spend or cut taxes you know, at their discretion without having to pay for it, then I can see that view, you know, whether or not you know, mainstream economists, as long as there are some economists and they're, and they're putting out a view which seems really, somewhat reasonable, then you'll give, you give politicians an excuse not to do anything. But it hasn't really caught on in that. So, so Larry Summers is the person most associated with the secularistic nation stuff. But you didn't really see Hillary Clinton's platform uh, introduce massive spending programs without announcing financing mechanisms, right? So it hasn't really... And the caught, Obama administration explicitly said yeah. that they don't believe it. Exactly. Right? So that, that hasn't really There are also a lot of people left who think that was a big mistake, that, that these views uh, need to be part of future future Democratic campaigns, and that these, can, these, these, these candidates, not, not they, they, these candidates were held But even when they do views. the job guarantee stuff or, the, you know, when, when they have Sanders' single-payer proposal, there's always... Uh, you know, financing in there, right? I mean, it's massive tax increases, but you know, but they're but they're in, right, they're in there. Or in Bernie Sanders' case, uh, like fanciful growth estimates. Yeah, you can finance it that way. Yeah, but but so that's separate from you know believing that these uh, that that a more uh, loose fiscal policy is good per se, which is what the secular stagnation folks believe. And I also think that um, I think that I think that. I question the. I guess I question the the very foundation, the bedrock of your question. Um, am I allowed to do that? 
You're allowed to. Do you dare? <laughs> I, I, I do dare. You know, when you look at, at, at U.S. economic history, you see uh, nothing but budget deficits. Um, I don't know how many years that the budget has been in balance or in surplus since, you know, the year 1965. I think, I think it's two, like two or three years, something like John that. John Kasich likes to talk about those two. John, yes, and if John Kasich were here, he would, he would be able to tell us that. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it's – I mean, I think this is what we do. And um, we do it in recessions. We do it in expansions. We do it when Democrats are president. We do it when Republicans are president. It seems crazy to believe that the, that the politicians need permission from an econo- well, from, we, from, we are, from a subgroup of economists. Well, we are in a bit of uncharted territory as far as the size of the debt roll to the economy. So there is, is something new. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, but it is a it is a continuation of what of what we have we have seen. I think, but I agree that it's that it's different and it's and it's, and it's bigger and it's troubling. Um. Your question is now in rubble because the foundation was shattered, but it will rise like the phoenix. Uh, um, he's never read the foundation novels, even though he likes to write and tweet a lot about sci-fi, yeah, which is very disappointing. Yeah. Maybe he'll travel to the future and read it there and then come back to the past. And um, the- all right. So uh, an- another idea which um, maybe was a consensus was that sort of uh, – you know, liberal free market economics was a good thing. We've sort of figured out how to run uh, our economies. Uh, that idea does seem to be under attack by some. Um, we just had the 100th uh, birthday of Karl Marx. I don't want to necessarily say celebrated, but it was certainly noted. 200th. 200th, rather, right. 1818, uh, 18, 18, May 5. I understand that with all your time travel, <laughs> you get confused. My sense of time and space. Uh, it, it, was, it was his 100th birthday when he woke up this morning 100 years ago. <laughs> it is difficult to keep track, uh, granted. Um, this morning when Jim was in Flanders. So there's <laughs> <laughs> So there's a lot of stories about the new relevance of Karl Marx, new relevance of, of Marxism. Uh, is, it, is, is there? There is. Am I going to have to attack the bedrock and foundation of this question as well? Oh, man. Uh, lots, of, lo- lots of stories. And there's also been a lot – I see a, a, a lot of talk that he wasn't wrong just really, really early. And now if you look at the economy of rising inequality – these oligopolies, whether in technology, that that we are fi- we have finally achieved what the Marxists had called late stage capitalism, and thus we must prepare for a post capitalist society, perhaps enabled by artificial intelligence replacing the market system. Yes. Uh, How are you preparing for that world in your uh, personal life? I will I will tra- I will travel to a place where I'm comfortable, which is uh, about 1986. <laughs> Bears are Super Bowl champions. All was right in the world. I was fine. Uh, thoughts on Marxism, late-stage capitalism, and our post-capitalist uh, future where um, artificial intelligence replaces the price system. Go, go, go. I think if it's important if you want to be a you know, utopian prophet, it's important to announce that the, the big changes are just around the corner. Um, and I think a little bit of that is what's happening here, right? Where they say, look, we now have artificial intelligence. This will help us resolve the, the calculation problem. And yes. Things like, yeah, you like that? That's in my notes, actually. Uh, really? the calcul- yeah. oh, oh, there you go. Um, Jim doesn't like to prepare for podcasts until like 10 minutes before. So I, we, we didn't know what we were going to talk about. Well, well, the idea is that um, information technology makes utopian socialism possible. But it does uh, – 
Yeah, so how does it work? Because you still well, don't really know that... The information technology reaches into the human soul and rewires it, changing human nature to allow people to live in that utopia. I think it is that it reaches deep uh, into human behavior and human interactions uh, and is able to pull out information that allows people to make plans in a way they couldn't before because they weren't able to access that information because the price system and markets aggregated information, but now we can do it through big data and AI and also AI and big data. It's like a more and better version of your Google Calendar. It's Google Plus, Super Plus. Uh, but I'm certainly hearing it, and, people are, and, and, then it's, and it's from it. And people who believe that there are some books out on it, and if you look at their agenda, um, you may not hear a lot of economists or politicians talking about late stage or post-capitalism, but if you look at the sort of ideas that these people have, they are making their way into the mainstream, and so whether it's the, universal basic the, income or breaking up tech companies or, you know, New financial regulation. That those the ideas are emerging. I don't understand um, what right. the basic income has to do with any of this. But is the theory well, it's not going to have any jobs? Is the theory that we have been seeing we 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 see that large public sector bureaucracies or sort of more socialist inspired governments have worked better in the last ten years than say between 1960 and 1970? Is that what inspires the optimism? Uh, I think when or is it just that no matter what happens, the people you are talking about here will say now is the time. I think they a little look- bit like you know, someone like David Koresh could serve as a role model for them. At some point, you realize your, the time has come, and I believe that they believe that. T- I think looking at economic economic circumstances again, the inequality, uh, you know. These, you know, these big technology companies that they believe the circumstances are now ripe, and but that but that the same technology which is perhaps driving some of these forces will also prove to be our salvation because it will allow it will allow planners to the run t- economies, t- it will allow governments to be more efficient, and it will allow um, uh, a time of such abundance that people won't have to work. And then, but what is the time ripe for? For the government to own the means of production? Um, perhaps. I think they believe that we'll have a much different kind of economy. We won't have big companies because people will be able to collaborate. And so company, all but those, so those frictions. But now you've moved on to a different group of people, right? So, so these are not necessarily the people who have always been committed Marxists. Now we're talking about well, people. I think some of them have always people, been committed people, Marxists. Yeah, yeah, sure. But now there's a separate subgroup of people who work for large technology firms or live close to them. And they want to see meaning in their day-to-day work. And so they believe, oh, the firms that we work for can solve every problem. Right. It, well, we've seen a lot of this with the privacy. Like a lot, it seems like there's a lot of motivated so, reasoning uh, going on here. We've seen a lot of this with the privacy issues, right? You know, the tech companies saying, you know, gosh, we just assumed if we made a more connected world, we'd make a better world. Let me. Uh, was that it? <laughs> was that? It? Well, you're I, not I know you like to make powerful statements and pause all this all so. Jim, you're not giving a. Yeah, you have to stand up and do your TED voice. The, the, there's not. The, there's not a lot of Hello. concrete. There's not a lot of concrete indications you're giving us to work with. Well, I. I I'm not sure. There, as what would be the would be the fact that uh, you're the our jobs jobs are not don't seem to be automated. We don't see uh, automation driven unemployment. Look, I think that, some I of mean, these circumstances don't actually seem to be happening because we have very low unemployment. I don't think, and that. we have very low productivity, which would mean we are not on the earth, on the, the precipice. But let me let me just give you a quote, Mike. You like you like giving quotes. I'm going to give you guys a quote. This is from um, Lord Alibaba, co-founder Jack Ma, uh, who's from China. Um, 
And this, the idea of AI-driven utopian socialism might appeal to uh, Beijing. Um, this is from the Alibaba co-founder. Over the past hundred years, we've always felt – I don't know who the we is here, but we have always felt that the market economy is excellent. But in my opinion, in the next three decades, there will be a significant change. The planned economy will become increasingly large because we have all access to all kinds of data. We may be able to, be able to find, I think parenthetically here through artificial intelligence, the invisible hand of the market. Ah, I now understand your question. So can I, I, will, I will tell you Jim's question. You're, you're catching up with us. I, do you understand Jim's question? I think everyone, everyone has understood the question Ever since he asked it. A lot of your responses suggested that you did not understand the question. Well, go ahead. Well, but no, you, why don't you respond to Alibaba? This is about the calculation problem. Mike, you're, Mike you've seized this question by the throat. Continue. <laughs> Can uh, you repeat the question? <laughs> <laughs> Over the last hundred years, we have felt the market economy is excellent. I don't think that's actually true in China. But anyways, uh, in my opinion, the next three decades will be a significant change. The plant, the Planned economy will become increasingly large. We'll have access to all kinds of data. We may be able to find the invisible hand of the market. He's saying that the AI will solve the calculation problem. Exactly. Of that's that's, that's exactly, exactly right. That's what I said. The way I told yeah, him like 20 minutes ago. I, I, I understand that. Yeah. And then I explained to him that there's no real reason that we've seen so far. to. to that's because you don't understand the AI. And in addition, of course, none of that solves incentive problems, solves Preference extraction problem. That was my we point. Won't need, we won't need incentives because uh, we'll all be have such abundance that we, we won't. Not, we, we won't need incentives. Go ahead, answer the question. Let's, let's, let's say that AI says, okay, we have 320 million people in the United States, and these are their characteristics, and these are the things that they that they you know want. Understand they what they want, their needs, their desires, exactly. their hopes, and their so fears, we're going to make a little plan for all of them. Right. right. That doesn't that doesn't solve the problem of how you get the people to follow the plan. And it doesn't solve the problem of oh, they, uh, the Marxists. They know how to well, make but he follow. <laughs> that has never been the problem to make that. I, I don't know. If, the I, don't, plan. I don't know if you noticed, but Jim immediately switched gears again. He said, "No, no, it's not actually. It doesn't have to solve those problems because we no longer have scarcity." Is that what you're saying? Uh, it's very well, slippery. Will, no, will, no, yeah, we will have abundance. That, that's the difference from Soviet communism. That was about scarcity. This will be about. Blessed abundance. Well, the problem with the Soviet economy was both scarcity and, of course, uh, solving the the social planners' problem. Um, if we have abundance, and if we have the supercomputers, then I suppose abundant supercomputers. <laughs> then I suppose the government would not have to compel anybody to do anything because the supercomputers could produce all the things that. But people the starting want. point of abundance seems uh, a little far fetched, and I don't know how he smuggled that in there. But given the given the unlimited wants that are implicit in human nature. Yeah, and given the productivity levels we've seen, given output growth, which hasn't been you know that great. Just okay. wait. Because the I understand, and I understand what the what the the because you're going to say oh but there are so many zero marginal cost products now I mean not really right? it's mostly ads let me let me help you with a question you have to pick your dystopia either the robots are this so is, impressive and powerful and the utopia. technology is so advanced that we don't have a scarcity problem. In which case, people don't need to work and we'll have soaring productivity without people working. Or we can't get uh, productivity up and we're going to have slow growth for all time. And what are the people going to do for jobs? I think a good first step would be for you to pick which of those two dystopias is your favorite. And then we can continue the conversation. 
I don't understand why. I don't understand why you think there's nothing to do for the people if we have such slow growth. Well, maybe there are things that they can do. Yeah. They won't want to do a lot of things. I'm saying I'm attacking the foundation of your two dystopian oh, scenarios. Well, I can help you. The reason the reason the is because bedrock. the reason is because the wages that they can get will be so low that they would rather just stay home and not work. Mm. We, this is a recession. No, no, no. It can happen in an expansion. So, so we've the, forgotten how to make things. So we cannot... I'm outlining Jim's two dystopias. I would like for him to pick which of the two. I, I think Jim's questions are I, I, I would just like to bottom line it. You do not think that we can replace a market economy with a planned AI-enabled economy within the next 25 years. Unlike you, I can't go to the future. Why don't you just I know the answer. answer to this, by the way. There is a right answer because I've seen it. That would be a no. You don't think so. I think if you had taken more time well, you've, you've, to prepare for this podcast, <laughs> we wouldn't have spent so much time on this bizarre topic. <laughs> I mean, you keep giving... You keep, well, I mean, this, is my, this is all I want to talk about. But, and this is a fantastic topic. I'm serious. No, what these guys hey, Mike, always, let's talk about taxes. Are, what these guys always do is they yeah. change their... They want to say, oh, Marxism is good. Questions are coming. Or, you know... Current technological change is really revolutionary in a way that's never happened before. And then you tell them, well, but there's no real obvious evidence for any of those things. And they, they keep, keep changing the terms. You just assumed abundance. Like out of the blue. <laughs> well, isn't, isn't, that what econ- isn't that the classic economist joke? No. Assume a boat. You're on, you're no. on a, de- on a no. desert. I assume no. a boat. No. That's what I read. In economics, I read that. The in one book thing economist you, joke, that's like the first the joke. The one thing you cannot assume in economics is abundance because then all of your skills become useless. Because there's no optimization left to do, you know? Gotcha. All right, listen, I promised I, promised I asked uh, that I would take questions. That assumes there are questions. If people have questions, we will actually raise your hand right now, and we will bring a mic around. Go. Who has a question? Hand right. All right, that far corner. Oh, man, I have to go to the far corner. It's a long walk. It's unusual for a podcast to have a live audience and to have questions. Uh, it is. So we're, uh, we're innovating. Yes. Given the people that are promoting it, and talking about it and writing about it, isn't AI just Marxism by other means? It's a central planning model. Well, I don't think that artificial intelligence is Marxism. That's in, a, in, it's a technology. In any, in any, it's a technology like like grilling. You know, it's not. I don't. I don't like think grilling. It, yeah. Like when you throw a burger on the grill. Yeah. And then you get an output. <laughs> and then you get an output, which is a cooked burger. Yeah. <laughs> So, so I would say no. I think the people who draw the scenarios that Jim likes are typically maybe, you know, perhaps like Jim themselves, uh, Trotskyites. <laughs> uh, I think that that's an Aston answer. Uh, right, right here, uh, we're going to sprint the mic. We're going to sprint the mic right to this table. We're over here. Yes, this gentleman right here, fast, so fast. Yes. So when you're talking about like the ideal end game. Of a planned economy and Marxism. Oh, like, like, see, people love this topic. No, yeah, they like, love it. They're all very confused. Sir, it's, I know it's where continue. a lot of like, the discussions in culture. You need to talk right? about it like, for 40 minutes. What else are you going to ask con- about? Continue. I don't know. The debt. You we talk about can, the debt you, for 40 You guys can ask about anything. It doesn't have to be the no, things that Jim no, no, no. wanted to talk about. He's expressing a preference, Dr. Stray. He's expressing a preference. I'm happy to answer his question. I just want everybody else to Please let him answer Should they so choose? Yes, sir. To ask questions about relevant topics. Great, yeah. Uh, the end game, though, is there's not even a currency, right? There's not even a monetary unit, and there's no sort of market signaling. And then how do you, like, the, 
it's a flawed premise because there's no it's assuming that there's no innovation beyond that because how do you allocate capital if there's no monetary signal the bots are going to come up with the next idea that's going to make the most money yeah look i mean a market a market economy is an economy in which households and um, businesses uh, try to make as much money as they can or try to make themselves as well off as possible um, subject to limited resources and in order for a market economy to work People have to want more than uh, in the aggregate there is, and those scarce resources have to be allocated. And the way that those resources are allocated is through the price system. If we are um, assuming a world where uh, what the sum, where the sum of wants is less than what's available, in other words, if we're assuming a post-scarcity economy, and if we're assuming an economy where a computer can figure out what everybody actually wants and what everybody you know would do if they were you know able to do it then you know notions of prices um, become uh, somewhat confusing to understand so maybe that's Marxism. But, but think of how far removed this is from where we are, right? Because you need to extract everyone's preferences. You need to build knowledge about the future that no, normally you use the price system to, to at least uh, to some extent discover. Um, and this is why people like James Patrick Cook is when they talk about this, they slip in this assumption of abundance because then all of these problems go out of the window. But that's obviously not how it works. And it's not necessarily – I mean I don't even – I'm not even – you know, I'm not a lover of Karl Marx, but I'm not sure I would even apply the label Marxism to this. I mean you know, what, what the, the typical manifestations of communism are that instead of the market allocating resources, the government should allocate resources. But yeah, Like in Medicare. Like in Medicare um, or you know, in the AEI dining room. Um, but these are not you – know, you know, these systems work. Uh, or these systems are intended to work in an economy that still features scarcity. And that's not what I'm uh, stipulating, <laughs> abundance. All right, I think we have time for maybe one, maybe two. Oh, probably more. So I have to, uh, well, we'll just won't stop. We'll just throw uh, this down on the table. Uh, uh, gentleman's hand raised back there. To return to the subject of large deficits. Excellent. And, and I'm asking entirely from the layman's perspective. Can AI stop that? <laughs> No, am, I, am I correct in sensing a repeat of uh, the George H.W. Bush presidency in which he inherited a booming economy whose only flaw, I was told as a layman, was soaring deficits, and George Bush did nothing to address those deficits and became politically vulnerable? Well, I definitely don't think this administration is going to raise taxes. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think I – think so certainly I think that, uh, that President Trump inherited a, a decent economy. Um, I agree that the Trump administration won't raise taxes. And the president has been very clear um, that he does not want to reduce spending on entitlement programs like Social Security or, or Medicare. So uh, you know, I think the best guess is that we will continue to have these very large budget deficits. Um, the question is whether President Trump will pay a political price for that and uh, – you know. Again, whether or not a politician is concerned about deficits really depends on whether or not the other party is in the White House. Um, but I think traditionally Republicans have been you know, more vocal about this issue. 
um, than Democrats. They have retreated. They're now, as a political party, they're completely fine with large deficits. Um, uh, and you know the the Democrats are um, making some noise about the size of deficits, but the the people who the Democrats are likely to field in the 2020 presidential primary are going to want to spend a lot of money. Um, I think they will. I agree with Stan's earlier comment. They will have some pay-fors included in there, but I don't think any of them – I'd be surprised if any of them would be running on some sort of a balanced budget type plan. So you know, it, it very well could be that in the absence of some sort of external event or in the absence of political pressure uh, you know, driven by interest payments on the debt exceeding what we – spend on national defense or something like that, that President Trump will be able to get away politically with these uh, trillion-dollar deficits, which will accrue to the detriment of the U.S. economy. Stan, did you have a – you want to jump in that at all? Um, he agrees with every word I said. Yeah, mostly. I think the uh, – I think that, you, know, you know, I think there's some truth to what Mike is saying, that, that Democrats will become a little more skeptical about deficits than they were last time, but – you know, we saw that. I mean, look, the Republicans did the same thing during the Bush administration, during the Reagan administration. You know, like, it's not like Republicans have always worried about deficits. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Do you see Ovik's hand? What's up? Uh, we, oh, boy. I think, we're, I think we're out of – right? We have one? One? We're completely out of time? It's, 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 important, to, it's important to name the person whose question we're cutting out. Ovik but. came here from Texas. I All think. Right. Is that right? I, I can't guarantee, I can't guarantee that we're, this, is, this is even going to be included. We're way, way over Ovik. Well, you might not want to answer this question anyway. Um, uh, to what degree have any of you or all of you thought about the rise of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as an alternative to fiat at a time when there are unsustainable debt, uh, debt deficits and debt? Could that be the way out of this, that people lose faith in the U.S. dollar and other currencies where uh, political economy leads to unsustainable deficits and debt. No, I think, I think the moment you have a large debt in dollars is, is when you least want to change to a different currency. That seems right? – that's when you want to keep the dollars that you can bring your way out of your debt. I, I think it's – no. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree with I, – I, 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 I agree with that. I mean, I guess the question is whether – Beyond that, I don't really see the link. Okay. Well, so I guess the, I guess the link is that people are freaking out about the debt and they're worried about the looming hyperinflation to get rid of the debt, and so they all start spending Bitcoin. Um, that seems unlikely to me. Uh, huh? Does it seem likely to you? No, I just don't see why, what. I just don't. I don't think I see the link. That is, is the idea. The link is the same as the link with gold. Where you're worried about the yes. debt, yes, but precisely. it's through inflation. It's it's well, it's both through inflation. It's both through inflation or inflation expectations, but it's predicated on people knowing enough to actually, in mass. I, I don't think that. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't go for Bitcoin as like a less volatile asset. You're more. You're more of Ethereum. A, you're more of a gold guy. How much gold do you own? Well, I don't know. If you're worried about hyperinflation, which I am certainly not. Than gold. So you have a relatively limited stash of gold. Of gold, yes, that's right. Well, that will have to be the last question. Uh, uh, You've done a great job. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for downloading the podcast. Thanks uh, for coming. Uh, This was the 100th podcast. As a time traveler, I've been to the 200th podcast, and they're on that one as well, but they do a much better job. All right. Thanks, everybody. Ricochet. 
Join the conversation. 